Hello, I'm Kate Fisher. Welcome to Milkshakes for Mali, the podcast that tells the survival stories of blood product recipients to thank donors and to encourage people to donate blood, plasma, platelets or breast milk. Here at the Milkshakes for Mali podcast, we aim to bridge the gap of anonymity between donors and their recipients. If you have ever been a donor, you could have been the one to save the life of the guest that we profile here each week on the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. And becoming a donor in the future means that you too could become a part of this story. Today, we have an interview with Australian Winter Olympian curler Dean Hewitt. Dean partners with Tala Gill in doubles curling and has recently returned home after representing Australia at the Beijing Winter Olympics. They were the first Australian team to ever qualify to compete in the sport of curling and they had triumphant wins, upsetting Switzerland and Canada. Dean has joined us on the pod today to talk about his friend, fellow curler Ian Eisnott Pelagio, who died from blood cancer in 2020. Ian received blood products during his treatment that prolonged and improved the quality of his life. Dean also talks to us about his grandfather, who suffered internal bleeding and also required blood products. Dean is absolutely representing the fact that you or someone that you love will require blood products in your lifetime. Here is my chat with Australian Olympian Dean Hewitt. So Dean, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me, Kate. So can you just tell me about a little bit about what you've been doing this morning? Yeah, so I was um, out at the Monash Children's Hospital, um, which is in Melbourne, and uh, I was out at the Starlight Foundation room there and had a good virtual session with all the kids listening, and they asked me a whole bunch of questions there, and it was fantastic engaging with them, and um, it makes it a little more special when you're helping out someone else's day, not just yourself, so um, love those kind of mm-hmm. things and, and helping out the kids where we can. Yeah, so the Starlight Foundation has been really, really, really special to our family. Um, We've spent a lot of time in children's hospitals when Marley hasn't been unwell. And they haven't just been amazing for her, but also her two big brothers who have had to spend a lot of time in hospitals when she's been really sick. And the Starlight captains that have just played video games with them when we've had tough appointments or played trivia or put movies on for them or discos or all that kind of stuff has just been amazing. And when Marley was first starting to recover a little bit, she started saying that she wanted to work in a hospital oh. when she grew up. And initially we were like, oh, so, you know, do you want to be a doctor? Do you want to be a nurse? Like, what do you want to do? And she's like, uh, no, I want to be a starlight captain. <laughs> That's so. the best. They have the best job. They're so excited and so happy. And they're just amazing <laughs> people, really. So, yeah, she's an aspiring Starlight captain. So maybe you two can collab and do some stuff together for one of the children's hospitals. At yeah, some for stage. sure. That sounds awesome. <laughs> How does it feel to be introduced as an Olympian? I still have to pinch myself, to be honest. Um, it's pretty special and something that was like, a, you know, childhood dream. So to actually achieve that um, when we did was pretty special. And hopefully we can do it again and just extend that dynasty, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, So welcome home to Australia and you must be incredibly proud of some of the results that you achieved in Beijing, um, particularly those gutsy wins over Switzerland and Canada. Do we call them gutsy wins in curling? Is this the terminology that I'm supposed to use? Because it's intense. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose you could call it that. It was a pretty wild ride, I suppose, for those last couple of games. You know, literally 
I think it was 45 minutes before we had to be on the ice. We got the call up saying that we actually were allowed to play. So if anyone that didn't know, um, we got the call that morning saying that we weren't allowed to play because Tally had um, another positive um, test for her COVID test. Mm-hmm. And we knew that that was just going to be um, shedding from old virus um, from back basically a month beforehand mm-hmm. for the Olympics when we tested positive initially. So um, yeah, it was really disappointing at that stage, but to get that call up and then re- literally race out, grab a taxi and get to the rink. And we got on ice, didn't even do a warm up or anything and just started playing. Like yeah. it's an incredible feeling once you actually get out there for, for something which you weren't, which you really thought you were on the plane for, for that period. And suddenly you're playing and out, in, you know, on the Olympic stage and yeah. playing against the reigning gold and silver medalists and actually being able to beat both of them was <laughs> pretty special and pretty incredible yeah it's an amazing thing so it it would be interesting for you to have seen how that media played out in Australia with you know the devastation and Tali's got COVID and then not playing anymore and then next thing you know there's like result updates because you guys were playing (laughs) and just even from a sports psychology point of view that fascinated me as to the way that you would have prepared for that and you know you may as well just go for broke because you thought that you weren't going to be there anyway so just in a game that's so strategic it just yeah it fascinated me from that point of view yeah yeah exactly because we really didn't have any preparation just go embrace the moment enjoy it for what it's worth and for goodness sake yeah. we're at the olympics so yeah absolutely. Um, you know we're finished off the event as we wanted to we got to play all the games we could and may yeah. as well you know leave no stone unturned out there and yeah. give it all we got <laughs> quite literally no stone yeah. i've been learning some that's of the right. terminology <laughs> as I've been preparing for this interview. Um, so only, a lot of people probably don't know, but only 10 countries can qualify for the Olympics in curling. And so simply the fact that you qualified a team for Australia to play it all is just simply such a remarkable achievement. Um, can you explain to our listeners who might not know too much about curling, um, just a little bit about the sport and also the fact that there's no dedicated ice rinks in Australia and how that impacts your preparation? Yeah, so Australia um, getting to the top 10 was huge at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's incredibly hard to achieve in any sport, let alone curling, where, as you said, there's no dedicated curling ice um, in Australia. And we'll get to that in a second. But yeah, in sure. terms of like curling itself, um, curling is basically a sport originating in Scotland basically 500 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the objective of the game is to slide these big 20 kilo stones along the ice down towards the other end about 45 meters long you're aiming at a target that's within the ice it's about 12 feet in diameter you're trying to get as many of your stones as close to the center of that target as possible before the opposition's best counting stone and then you see that frantic sweeping and the frantic sweeping is actually helping to make that rock go further Right. but also can adjust the direction a little bit so you'll probably hear us yelling quite a lot on the ice and that's basically communicating back and forth just saying if we need to sweep or not saying do we need to sweep it and make it keep it straight or sweep it to actually make it curl a little bit more than what it already is um so that's kind of curling in a nutshell i suppose but as getting back to you know no de- dedicated curling ice in yeah, australia yeah. that's incredibly tough i mean i think we're we might from my knowledge be the only team or country in history that have ever made it to the olympics without any dedicated ice mm-hmm. and what i kind of compare that to is Let's say the Australian test cricket team, they've been brought up their whole life playing on the beach with a tennis ball and then they have to go play the Ashes in England. 
that's yeah. that's similar to what we have in curling you know you have no mm -hmm. idea where it's going to bounce it bounces a bit different it doesn't quite react how it's supposed to and that's kind of what happens on our ice is you throw the rock and you may as well close your eyes because you have no real control or no um no idea about where it's going to end up because the ice isn't flat enough for us so we need that perfectly flat ice that's not chopped up by skating and you can only really get that overseas at the moment so hopefully one of the biggest goals from the olympics is to actually get some dedicated ice from that yeah sure and i had heard that in some of your other interviews as well so i thought anything that we could do to support that and give that message a bit more airtime our podcast was more than <laughs> yeah happy thank to you. That for you but how do you even have like how do you have a national championships how do you even get selected for an australian team if you don't have the facilities to be able to do it is it based on international performances how does that work so our nationals are always held in new zealand funnily enough oh so that's all the australian curlers that needs to, to new change zealand <laughs> to play um our national championship and you know look at new zealand they've got at least three dedicated curling rinks and they're looking at probably expanding that to four or five in the next few yeah, years right. so um, for Australia to have zero and them to have potentially five coming up, it sounds a bit ridiculous <laughs> for population our size. So hopefully we can get some dedicated ice so we can actually host our nationals in Australia and get some more yeah. curlers out as well. Yeah, and look, that just makes what you have managed to achieve even more remarkable. So congratulations. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, how Thank did you, you get into the sport? So originally it was from my mother. She was um, Canadian. So she learned to play over there. It's really big over there, like over a million people curl in Canada. Yeah. And she met my dad, who's Australian, and taught him how to curl. And both of them have played for years and years on the Australian teams. So it was kind of just natural for me growing up since I was literally a baby, um, surrounded by curling and learning from them and learning on the Australian ice. And then when I get a chance to, especially going back to Canada to see mum's family, you know, getting to get on some proper ice over there where I can. Yeah, awesome. Have you played any ice hockey? I am an atrocious skater. I will say that much. <laughs> That's brilliant. Beautiful honesty. <laughs> <laughs> so no, no, I've, I've played field hockey. I used to play field hockey, but um, yeah. can't skate. Just not. So, a... <laughs> <laughs> no. um, so such a roller coaster of emotions to qualify for your first ever Olympics to represent. And the first time Australia has been represented in curling at Olympic Games. Um, you're saying before Talia was diagnosed with COVID. Um, everyone in Australia was heartbroken and then elated and then excited. And then we didn't know what was going on um, and having all of that overturned. Um, what is the most magic moment from your Olympics experience? It's probably a toss up between two things. I think stepping on that ice for the first time and seeing the Olympic rings in the ice, on your shirts, on the rocks, covered around the rink, like that's incredible. And the facility was unbelievable. Probably the best facility I've ever played in in my life. Um, but also a close, probably very similar would be walking out for that opening ceremony. Yeah, I think wow. turning right down the race and um, all the big lights and looking up and seeing these massive Olympic rings that you walk mm -hmm. under, that was yeah, spine tingling. And I still remember yeah. that so clearly. And I think, you know, every, I guess, sport is such a massive part of Australian culture. And I think, you know, we've all grown up watching that on our TVs and to actually be a person that's doing that. I just, yeah, I can't imagine how amazing that would be. And to be part of a team that are doing it together as well with your Olympic team, it must be really special. Now, I know from our previous conversations that your career was very much influenced by a very famous and respected man in curling circles by the name of Ian 
Palangio, is that how I say his yep. surname? Yep. yep. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your friendship with him? Yeah, so that goes back quite a long way. Um, Ian actually used to play with my dad um, many years ago and used to go out and basically be their little cheer squad um, in the stands when they were playing at World Championships. And, um, yeah. and then I think, when was it? Played back in 2014. Um, myself and another mate of mine, we said, well, we want to kind of form a really good team going forward. And we said, well, the best person to ask to get on that team is Ian. So wow. we gave him a call up and he split up from his original team, which, you know, had been going on for well over a decade. Like, and we said, you know, interested in playing with us and forming a kind of young and newer team. And he was really keen. So yeah, basically played with him from 2014 until 2019. Um, which was just amazing. Like he was our skip. So he's basically the captain in curling mm -hmm. um, and his knowledge and background was phenomenal. And his, um, his belief in me as a player was pretty special too. I mean, like you look at um, him playing, he essentially he'd play the last rocks of every end and he'd do that. He'd done that for well over a decade himself. And then he said, Dean, I think it's your turn to actually do that. So putting that um, responsibility mm -hmm. on me, but having that belief in me was pretty special and gave me so much confidence off the back of that. And, experience that I got from working with him and learning from him was it was really special really so Ian had a rare type of blood cancer and needed blood products during his treatment and one of the things that we like to highlight here um, on the Milkshake Somali podcast is the achievements and contributions that blood product recipients make to their communities um, what did Ian mean to people in the curling community I mean he he took so many roles in curling and everyone kind of says that he epitomized um, the spirit of curling, which is actually in the rule book. So the rule book is all around like, you know, having that friendship and bond between all the players, you know, your fierce pet, uh, competitors on the ice, but um, off the ice, you're all friends. And um, it's kind of a sport where you finish a game and then you go up traditionally to the bar and have a drink with, with the other team. And he'd always epitomize that. And um, he'd never try and win um, unfairly. He'd rather lose than win unfairly. And that's kind of one of the big things, I suppose, um, that curling is all about. And, you know, if you touch a rock as you're sweeping, he'd be the first one to own up to it and say, no, that's um, like not in the rule book. So I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm going to call it myself, even though the opposition didn't hear it. Um, yeah. But, you know, he did so much for the sport across Australia, like to increase the status of where it got to. And he got within half a point of, getting to the Olympics in 2010, which is one place they, instead of uh, being top 10, they're 11th. So they're incredibly close. Um, and I still remember the shot, which um, it came down to. So, you know, the, the exposure that he brought to it, but also the volunteer role that he had within the Australian Curling Federation, like he was vice president for many years there and um, really tried to run the New South Wales Curling Association as well. Um, and did a whole lot of stuff behind the scenes to, help the sport grow as well. Um, and even, you know, take, took it upon himself to um, work with Paralympics Australia to help mm -hmm. see if they could grow up, grow um, uh, curling in, in wheelchair curling a little bit more mm -hmm. and see how that kind of process works. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's starting to build off the back of him as well. So he, he definitely left his um, footprint for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And speaking of that footprint, he, he must've been with you, 
so much in spirit when you stepped that first foot on the ice as an Olympian and so much of his contribution has influenced your career and you get to carry through that legacy, not just as an athlete, but also in terms of your contributions to Australian community and sport. And he just sounds like a remarkable human. So thank you so much for sharing his story with us today. Yeah, Um, pleasure. Moving on to your grandfather, you mentioned that he recently needed some blood products following some internal bleeding. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that story? Yeah, so that was, I think that was actually when I was, it's been a couple of times he's needed blood actually. Right. I can't remember which one it was, but um, yeah. yeah, there was one time, and I think it was when I was actually overseas, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. Um, and essentially he needed, oh, I think it was, seven units and the max they could give was eight so he got mm-hmm. down to the fi- pretty much the final one until they said that's enough yeah that's um, a lot. and that was all before he got on the helicopter to actually go to um the the main hospital so mm-hmm. yeah he was in a pretty tough state there but um to receive that amount of blood and to keep him going like he's yeah. still going now and um mm-hmm. without that blood there's no chance he would have been um mm-hmm. here at all so it's yeah. pretty special and you know being able to see him again it's it's pretty cool so yeah does he live regionally or rurally yeah so he's in canada um and lives kind of two hours away from a major city yeah right um and i was actually in canada at the time and i was um a couple hour flight from him um so i wasn't able to see him but yeah it's it's pretty incredible what he's been mm. through but um to have that support of you know blood donors to have that mm. blood available for him like it, yeah. it makes such a huge impact for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had plenty of stories like that on the podcast where it's not just that blood has saved people's lives, but it's kept them alive until they can yeah. get to the major services that they need to actually treat their injuries or whatever it is that's happened to them. And I just don't think people realise how much, like the diverse range of uses that blood products are used for. So that's one of the reasons that we've made the pod is to share stories exactly like that. So um, yeah, how many yeah, grandchildren exactly. does he have? Uh, he's got two, me and my sister. Yeah, yeah. awesome. So, and it's yeah. those experiences that he now gets to have with you guys that he wouldn't have otherwise had, had his life not been preserved by those blood products at that yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. And he was, you know, he was able to watch me on TV at the Olympics, you know, you had that not happened, would have been able to see that. So. I was oh, sorry. How, <laughs> <laughs> how incredible that he then had the opportunity to, to watch his grandson as an Olympian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would have yeah, been pretty exactly. remarkable for him. Yeah, it was pretty special and be able to talk to him after that. It was, it was pretty incredible because he was quite a good athlete himself. Um, He was a ski jumper back in his day and got very high up in Canada. Um, And even, you know, his claim to fame was actually ski jumping through a ring of fire as well. Um, So yeah, he was a pretty big daredevil in in his day. I couldn't have done that myself, but um, yeah, it's pretty special to be able to share that with him. um, Even if, if it is over TV. Yeah, we've watched so many, so much of the Winter Olympics when it was on and some of the stuff that people do is intense. <laughs> like Winter Olympians are hectic, hectic, hectic people. Some of that stuff is insane. Like absolutely. I don't know how insane. they do it. Yeah. <laughs> so The people big... I talk to, it's just, it's incredible. The people I train with, I have so much respect for what they do because TV doesn't even do it justice about how high they jump how far they jump or the steep or the gradient of the um, hills is just 
and Next ice level. is hard and cold. Yeah. Like if you get a fall into it, it's not a great thing. No. <laughs> um, and so that was, you know, we were so excited to get you on the show to come and talk to us. Um, but when we started to scope some guests and we really wanted to get a Winter Olympian on the show, we were like, surely someone has got a hectic injury and they've needed something impressive and some good blood products. And people, they're shy though. Winter Olympians are shy. They haven't been keen to do too much media stuff. So if you've got yeah. any good contacts, let me know if anyone's got <laughs> hectic story hook me up and we'll see if we can yeah. tell some more stories <laughs> yeah we'll do um so if any of our listeners after listening to this today are interested in getting involved in curling how can they get involved so at the moment there's three places in australia that have curling um mm-hmm. the easiest way is to just check out the australian curling federation um mm-hmm. whether that's on facebook or um the website and they can kind of direct you to the different states but at the moment there's curling in brisbane melbourne and perth um and there's rocks in sydney we we just have to get the uh, club up and running again so hopefully get some curling up and running again in sydney or erina where it was last time yeah awesome all right to close this out um i just have a statistic for you that i'm not sure whether you've heard before um your life has been impacted so much by people who have received blood products Um, Did you know that there are 13 million Australians who are eligible to be blood donors and less than 500,000 people donate? So only one in every 26 people that can donate blood do donate blood. Um, And that just blows me away because I'm yet to talk to somebody who hasn't either themselves or had someone that they love receive blood products in some capacity. So it's something that everybody needs. Um, what would you like to say to Australian blood donors um, or anyone who's considering donating in the future? I think do what you can. I mean, both yourself and encourage your mates to do it together um, or your family and try and give blood as, as much as possible and, you know, help out those people who are in need because you never know one day down the track, you might need it yourself. And um, we're all in this together and trying to help out each other at the end of the day. And, you know, if it's your family member that needs it, you know, yeah, blessed by having people that are doing it, but we do need more out there, which can donate blood. And, you know, the categories are opening up, you know, there's less restrictions on who can give blood now. Um, so that's really positive. I think that's fantastic for, for all those people that do need it in the future. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Dean. And good luck with everything in the future. We really look forward to following your career. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Dean was such a joy to interview and I'm so grateful to him for making the time to come on the podcast between his commitments today. Um, It's hard to measure the impact that Ian and his grandfather had on him as an athlete, but also in terms of the person that he is. And blood donors gave him that extra time. From everyone at the pod, we extend our sympathies to Ian's family, friends and loved ones. He sounds like a remarkable human who has left such an amazing legacy in Australian sport. Nothing feels more Australian like the modern demonstration of mateship than donating blood or breast milk and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is still alive today because of this incredible selfless gift And it is my privilege to create a space for others to tell their stories and to give thanks. This podcast is written and presented by me, Kate Fisher. Today's guest was Australian Olympian Dean Hewitt. Marley's dad, my lovely husband, Jeff Fisher, does the audio production for this podcast. To make an appointment to donate plasma and other blood products in Australia, please go to www.lifeblood.com.au. 
and we would love it if you could add your donation to the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood Team Tally. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and share this episode with a friend. And as always, I will leave the final word to Mali. Thank you for my prayers, Mark.